All right, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. Moving right along in Genesis. Last time we got up, Pete took us up to verse 17. So we're going to hit the ground running with verse 18 this time. So that's Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter, verse 25. All right, hear the word of the Lord to you. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We ask that you would give us humble, open hearts to receive your word as it is, the very word of God. And Father, we do pray you'd give us ears to hear and you would enable us through the power of your Holy Spirit and by your grace to believe your word and to put it into practice. And Father, we, we ask that you would do this for us so that you would get the glory out of our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right. So as we have been preaching through Genesis, we've gotten to chapter 2. You notice that I like to ask questions, usually at the beginning of my messages. And this morning is going to be no different. So let me start with this one. What's the deal with polygamy being practiced in the Bible? I thought the Christian position was that of one man and one woman being united together in holy matrimony. And why would Moses allow couples to obtain a certificate of divorce when the Bible clearly teaches elsewhere that marriage is supposed to be till death do us part? Now, no doubt these are huge questions. But just in case your interest isn't peaked enough, I got a few more. What about gender roles? Are there any role distinctions between men and women in the family and in the church? Or are roles simply interchangeable? And does the Bible really exclude 
women from being ordained elders in the church? Or is that just some cultural construct that men made up? Well, the answer to every one of these questions is found right here in Genesis 2. And the church of Jesus Christ in our day desperately needs to hear and heed them. Listen, it's one thing for the world outside to be all over the map on what they believe about these things. But it's quite another thing when the church is thinking and when the people of God aren't clear on these vital foundational matters of life. We can't afford as the church of Jesus Christ to be one big muddled mess on these things. Well, how do we get a clear and proper understanding of these foundational chapters in the Bible? Well, I want you all to know my method of interpreting these pivotal verses of Holy Scripture found in Genesis 2. I wholeheartedly and I unabashedly believe that the Bible is its own best interpreter and that the New Testament gives us the God-inspired explanation of the meaning of these things that Moses wrote here in Genesis 2 and 3 later on. That's simply to say this. I stand on the words of Christ and his apostles. So for instance, when the Pharisees asked Jesus if it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason, he answers them this way. Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. In other words, he takes them to our passage this morning and also Genesis chapter 1, to the beginning, to the biblical account of the creation of man and woman and the first institution of marriage. What's his point? His point being is this. When all else fails, read the instruction manual. What was God's original intent for marriage when he first instituted it? When the Apostle Paul addresses the roles of women in the home and the church, in Ephesians 5 and uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy 2, guess where in the Old Testament scripture he turns? You guessed it, just like his Lord, Genesis chapter 2. And let me tell you why both our Lord and Savior and his apostles did this. Because the relationship between men and women, the original institution and purpose for marriage and gender roles were created and instituted by God, not after the fall, as some allege, but before. In other words, you want to know God's original intention for these things? Then you have to go to these chapters of Genesis which speak of the pre-fall condition of man, that is, before man disobeyed and fell into sin. Chris Fishlock, he's a, a British preacher. In his sermon on these verses, he puts it this way. He says, these verses are a picture of the way it was, the way it will be, but not the way it is now. Now, I really like the way he puts that. But allow me to humbly add just one thing. These verses are also a picture of what we should be aiming for as those who are recipients of the redemption that Christ came to bring. Now, of course, our marriage relationships and, and the relationships between men and women um, in general in the church 
on this side of heaven will never be what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. Perfect, harmonious, unbroken fellowship and agreement. However, the gospel's power at work in the hearts and lives of his redeemed people enables us to enjoy a measure of it now as we await the new heavens and the new earth that Christ will usher in when he returns to consummate his kingdom's reign. Hallelujah. So th this is a great picture of the, re the renewed relationships that Christ came to bring us through his death and his resurrection and ascension into heaven. So what we're going to see this morning in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, is that God made men and women equal with complementary roles and with order in the church and home. I'm going to repeat that. God made men and women equal with complementary roles and order in the church and home. So we're going to take a look at the first thing we see, and that's God created men and women equal. Now, first of all, we saw this clearly in our study of Genesis 1 so far, 1 and 2. Men and women were both made in the image of God with equal dignity, equal worth, and equal honor. Chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. Both made in the image of God. Then we also saw that men and women were both given the cultural mandate to do what? To be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 28. So before man's fall into sin and subsequent expulsion from the garden, there was an equality of the sexes. And we see further evidence of this in the text before us this morning in Genesis 2, 18 and following. So for instance, notice up to this point uh, where God created man and woman, in chapter 1, the text continues to make a point to say, and God saw that it was good. Now, our passage this morning goes back to the sixth day and gives us a close-up of the creation of man and woman. So, in other words, we read, it was good, it was good, it was good, until we get to verse 18 of chapter 2. Then for the first time, thus far in Genesis, in the garden, in paradise, we have God saying that something is not good. Now look, this should get our attention. What? I mean, this is paradise. How could something be not good? Well, we see in the text, God says it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that everything created thus far wasn't intrinsically good because we know the text goes to great pains to make just that point that everything was good you know like when some people today say no worries it's all good even though it's obviously not all good well back then it really was all good no when God points out that something's not good this is what he means he's pointing out that the masterpiece of his creation was not yet complete in other words it was missing something vital it wasn't yet finished it had a glaring um, thing missing. And that something had to do with his special creation, man. And it wasn't good 
for man to be alone. So God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. So verse 18 is the heading for all practical purposes. And then verses 19 to 25 explains how it all went down, how God went about just doing that or doing just that. And it, would, it is fascinating to see how God patiently and gently helped Adam to see that something was missing and that he lacked something incredibly important, vital, as a matter of fact. Moses tells us that God had formed out of the ground all of the animals of the land and the air. And God brought them all before Adam to see what he would name them. This has always fascinated me. All I can think about is how cool is that? Think about it. One incredibly cool creation of God after the other, marching up to Adam to be named. So Adam would see this thing with this real long neck, and he would say, man, I think, I think you're going to be called giraffe, right? He would see the she-goat, and then he would see this lizard, maybe a horse. Then the next thing would be a huge elephant. And then right after that, he'd say, now what do we have here? There'd be a little mouse. And go on and on with the cheetah and the gazelle. I mean, Sounds like a great, uh, you know, great adventure, Six Flags Great Adventure, like a safari, right? And then, of course, you would see that beautiful lion, my personal favorite. Now, I don't know about you, but I always like going to safari, but we'd have to be in a car because you need to be protected from the baboons. Because I'll tell you what, you try to walk through the baboon area and they will tear you to pieces. And that's not even talking about if you ended up mixing it up with some lions, or tigers. So imagine this. This would be like being on a safari in Africa without the need of weapons. Well, no, wait, wait, actually, it was being on a safari in the wild in the Middle East or Northern Africa, and there was no need of any buffer. Man and animals lived in complete peace and safety, and, and there was complete harmony before the two. What a beautiful world God created for man to live in and for him to be glorified by. But it's important to see as much as cool as that was and as fun as that must have been, as exciting it was for Adam, it's really important to see what God was actually doing in this process. Like a good father just bursting at the seams to give an incredible life-altering gift to his beloved son, God wants Adam to slowly recognize for himself his own great need of a helper that's suitable for him, someone every bit as equal, yet who compliments him in every way. By naming the animals and seeing them all get paired off according to their kinds, he would say, Oh, look, the lion has a lioness. He would start to realize how alone he actually is. He would see two things in particular, that none of these creatures are on his level. None of them can provide him with intimate companionship, intelligent and emotionally rich fellowship. And secondly, none of them are made in the image of God to help him fulfill his God given purpose on earth. Perhaps that's just what made him feel how alone he really was. In other words, it clearly demonstrated to him the truth that God already knew and proclaimed in verse, every, in verse 18. It's not good for the man to be alone. 
So we see this exciting detail in the text. God performs the very first surgery in the history of the world and administers the very first perfect anesthesia with no bad side effects. You know, like when you go and you go to get an operation and they hand you the stack of papers and they say, oh, just sign this real quick before we, you know, knock you out. And then you say, uh, what does it say, though? I'm just wondering. And they basically say, oh, we're ju it's just saying that, well, you could die. But the percentage is very small. Yeah, so we're actually signing a document that's saying, it's okay if you kill me. But not so in the garden. God has the perfect anesthesia. He puts the man into a deep, safe sleep. And we read this in the text. So the Lord God caused the man into, to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. Now, Moses wants us to take note of the intimate, special care that God took in creating woman. He made her from a piece of Adam, part of his own self, his very self. Now, you know how a mother may say to a child, I carried you in my body for nine months. I gave you birth. You know, especially if your mom was a Jewish or Italian, you know that sometimes she'd like to bring that up to you. But in all seriousness, we, we often hear moms say things like, you'll always be a part of me. And for sure, there's nothing on earth like the bond between a mother and her child. This is seen even in the animal kingdom. Try to get between a bear and her cubs and see what happens. But when you go back to the beginning, we see that the first man could literally say, Adam could literally say, you'll always be a part of me. For you came out of my own flesh. And so notice how Adam responds when God, who is uh, both the father of the bride and the father of the groom, as it were, he is the first to officiate at an official wedding in the history of the world. Well, when he presents the beautiful bride to the groom, notice how Adam responds. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now let me give you the Santo Garofalo living version. Thank you, God! Now that's what I'm talking about. See, Adam had finally met his match. Not a worthy opponent, because there was no struggle, there was no fighting, there was no strife there, but a worthy partner in the gift of life. Now, this, this, this can be seen even more clearly when we examine the words that God used to describe the woman in verse 18. I will make her, I'm, I'm sorry, I will make a helper suitable for him. So we saw that God created man and woman equal. Now we're going to see he also created them with complementary roles. Now, first we're going to take a look at the word helper. Okay, in the Hebrew, it's easer. And, um, which literally means helper. Now, I don't know about you, but usually when I think of the word helper, what comes to my mind is like a sidekick, like, you know, Robin to, to Batman, or a young apprentice who we're teaching the ropes to. Like when a dad brings his child to work and his fellow workers say, oh, I see you brought your little helper along. Well, when you think of it like that, I could see why women might feel slighted or insulted when they hear this text. Well, if you do think of it like that, well, then let me put your concerns to rest. Because guess who is also called 
Ezer, a helper in the Old Testament and even in the rest of the book of Genesis, you'll find it. You guessed it. God himself is called a helper. So there is no shame in being a helper. And that's what, it's exactly what Adam needed. Someone to come alongside and help him. He couldn't do it alone. Help him carry out his God-given task of ruling over and caring for the rest of creation. And of course, being fruitful and multiplying. And he needed someone that was corresponding to him. The animals weren't on his level. And on the other end, yes, he had intimate, awesome fellowship with God. But God wasn't on his level either because God was way above. No. This was a helper. And then the next part of the text, suitable for him. The Hebrew phrase for suitable, translates suitable in our translations, the NIV in particular, um, that word means corresponding to or in front of or in the sight of. The context makes it clear that the NIV and the other English translations have it right when they, when they translate it as suitable. Because that's exactly what the woman was. The perfect partner for the man. The perfect companion to help him live this gift of life that they both enjoyed. Now just because they were created equal doesn't mean that there weren't obvious differences. You don't need an advanced degree in biology to notice that men and women have some basic differences. But what we need to see here is before the fall, these differences weren't in competition with one another. Rather, they were in complete harmony, and they worked together like a beautiful symphony. You remember that movie, Jerry Maguire? Who could forget that famous, famous line that was originally um, conveyed by that deaf couple? that were in the elevator, the deaf man signs to his wife um, those words, you completely, complete me. And you remember later on when, when Jerry's in trouble and he's trying to woo his wife back, that's, that's like his clinching line is, you complete me. And then, of course, that's where she says, you had me at hello. You had me, and then we're all crying. Well, look, here's the point. The point is, that's not true. Eve didn't complete Adam. She complimented him. And that's not simply a quibbling over words. There is a really big difference. Now, if Eve completed Adam, then people called to singleness wouldn't be, they would be incomplete. And of course, that would mean Jesus in his human nature would not have been a com complete as a human. No. Woman complimented man. The word complementary can be defined as combining in such a way as to enhance or emphasize the qualities of each other or another. Only God, brothers and sisters, completes us. But certainly, men and women complement one another, and particularly in marriage. So there is no inequality between men and women, but there is a distinction of roles, And I want you to see this, and I want you to be careful to, see, to, to understand what's being said here. Notice that Eve was created to be a helper for Adam, and not the other way around, technically. Now, I know sinful men misuse this fact and misapply it in a way to justify male chauvinism, but that doesn't negate the truth. Now, listen. 
The Bible teaches we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But you remember when, when the apostles would preach this, there would be people that would go around and twist that truth and say, well, since we're saved by grace, then let us sin that grace may abound. Or, or since we're justified by faith, then we can live any way we want to. And what does Paul say? They're already condemned. That's an awful thought. But he doesn't backtrack on the truth. The truth, truth is still the truth, even though some people apply it in an awful way. And I also want you to see something here as well. The answer to male chauvinism, listen, is not radical feminism. Because male chauvinism does what? Exalts men above women, as if they're better in some way. But what does extreme feminism ultimately do? Puts women above men. No, plague on both your houses. No, notice here, there is complete equality, and yet there is a distinction of roles. Listen, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and when he was insisting that women wear head coverings in church, when they prayed and prophesied. Now, um, we can go back and forth whether that, that head covering was an actual scarf or, was it, or if it was the woman's hair, because later on he says her hair was given to her as a covering, but that's, that goes beyond the pale of what we're talking about here in Genesis 2. But what I want you to see here is notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 to back up his, his position. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 8-9, this is what Paul writes. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now listen, there was no battle of the sexes in the garden before the fall. The woman didn't complain that she was created as a helper suitable for man. And man didn't lord it over her or treat her like a subhuman because, she was created for, because he was created first and had the incredible privilege of naming her woman. No, instead you had two equals living out their differences, their glorious differences, in complete harmony. You know, that old quote from Matthew Henry still serves us very well and expresses it perfectly. He says this, The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And this only stands the reason. Because Mo Moses then adds this editorial comment that Jesus himself later quotes, and so does Paul. Look at verse 24 of chapter 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. How silly indeed it would be for a man to mistreat a woman, a husband to mistreat his wife, when she's flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone. It'd be like cutting his nose off to spite his face. Now there are many profound, deep implications of this particular verse, and I can't go into them all or develop them much this morning, but I do just want to uh, note a few of them in passing. 
First of all, we need to see that in a, ma in a marriage, a man leaves his childhood family and unites intimately with his wife, creating a brand new family unit, his new primary human relationship that supersedes his old family ties. Man, a lot of people need to learn this. A lot of couples need to learn this in our day. This leaving and cleaving, it's vital. It's biblical. It's foundational. Another implication of this is, now listen, this is so important to see this. Yes, we need to emphasize the truth I'm about to say with great compassion, with great empathy, with love in our hearts. But yet we still need to hold to it firmly in love and promote it. And that's this. Marriage was originally intended between one man and one woman for life. Divorce nor polygamy was ever God's, was never God's original intention. God always intended for it to be, even though we see later on, for whatever reason, God permitted polygamy, for instance, for a time. We know that when it comes back down to it, Jesus says, no, it wasn't like that from the beginning. That's not the way God intended it. And Jesus reminded the religious leaders of his day about this when they questioned him about divorce. Yes, and even when Jesus gives um, his, the, the reason for divorce, and later Paul gives one other one, even then, those reasons are to protect the innocent party that was keeping the covenant. Third quick implication here is we need to see this. And we need to help our children to see this as they grow. Sex is not a bad word. God himself created it to be enjoyed by a man and a woman within the bounds of holy matrimony. Now notice here, the two became one flesh. May, and it does mean more than just that they joined together physically and sexually. But it certainly doesn't mean less than that. I mean, it's God. You know, there were no hang-ups about sex in paradise before man rebelled against God. Look at the very last verse of chapter 2. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And listen, brothers and sisters, we in the church, especially parents, should be openly talking to, the ch to our children as they grow and are mature and, and they can handle more about the beauty and the reality of the great gift of sex. If they don't hear it from us, then they're going to hear the wrong way in the world, how it's twisted and misused and obsessed over. And, and that's not God's intention. So we should speak about it in its right context and the right way in the church. Allow me to summarize what we've seen in Genesis 1 and 2, thus far. God created man and woman in his image with equal dignity, equal worth, equal intelligence. God created man and woman with distinct roles that complement each other. Here in paradise, before the fall, man and woman had no problem with this God-given arrangement. Let me be blunt for a moment. 
This means that Eve had no problem loving and serving her husband and submitting to his headship in the home. You would have never heard her say something like this. Get it yourself. You think I was put here? You think I was cre God created me to help you? Well, of course, if, if she did say such a thing, you could just hear Adam going, well, um, uh, well uh, actually. <laughs> but listen, brothers. Adam had no problem putting Eve first and making sure she was treated like the precious gift and co-heir of the gift of life that she actually was, a very part of him. You'd have never heard him say a demeaning, overbearing word to Eve or throw around his authority. As I mentioned earlier, that would have been to cut off his nose to spite his face. Think of it this way. If they were to find a scroll with the words of Ephesians 5.21 and following on it, they would have thought it very strange indeed. Eve would have looked at it and submit to my husband? You don't need to tell me to do that. That's my joy to respect and submit to him. That's silly. And Adam would have said, let me see that thing. Love my wife sacrificially? Duh. She's my very heart. It's the joy of my life. Second only to worshiping and obeying God. Now why don't we see this in every marriage today? Because of the great fall of man, which we'll be looking at next time. So we're going to have to stop here for this week and pick it up next time. But before I close this with prayer, I want to leave you with these concluding thoughts. If there's anything we've seen in Genesis thus far, is that man was created by God as a social creature. Man, both male and female, were created to be in fellowship and communion with God and with one another, and on a lesser level, with the rest of creation. The most intimate of all human relations is recorded right here in Genesis 2, and that's the marriage relationship. It doesn't get closer. In marriage, the two become one flesh. Now that's deep. And we know today that this verse is actually even deeper than that. As the Apostle Paul informs us in Ephesians 5, that ultimately this verse is referring to a very different marriage relationship altogether. It's actually referring to the relationship between Jesus, the bridegroom, and his church, the bride. Because the very God who knows the end from the beginning, who actually plans the end from the beginning, designed marriage to reflect the relationship that Jesus would have with his people, the church. But not only did this not change after the fall, it took on an even deeper and more profound significance. For when man ruined everything in the garden by disobeying God and incurring the penalty of death, Jesus, as the ultimate husband to his bride, the church, said, not on my watch. And while she was running in the opposite direction, he poured out his love by sacrificing himself on the cross that we may be with him someday in paradise 
regained. My brothers and sisters, let, let us by God's grace strive more and more to reflect this relationship. As the church of Jesus, may we love him and submit to him and walk with him by faith in a way that it would give him glory in the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful words of life. We know that after the fall, they are convicting. And then we see how far we've fallen from this ideal. We see husbands mistreating wives. We see wives refusing to respect husbands. We see disorder in the church. And we see the battle of the sexes. And yet that was never your intention. And you gave us this order for your glory and for our good. So, Father, we pray that we would gain more and more clarity on these things and that we would trust you more by submitting to your word and putting your word into practice that others might see how awesome you are and that they would see also how good and merciful of a Savior we have in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.